Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Okay, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, we've been discussing the uh, nature of finance and the brain and those relationships between kind of those things that happen in the world. And when you sort of question, well, why did that occur? That's what we're, we're focused on, sort of analyzing, you know, our performance as an individual. Yeah, you know, we're, there's Dan and I both come from kind of different backgrounds. And uh, we love to have these conversations. And we thought we'd share some of them with you. And so this is yet again, another episode in that series. So Dan, what are we going to talk about today? Well, I thought we'd talk a little about expertise. So this is something that uh, everybody has some intuitive grasp of who an expert is, and you always want to trust expert opinion. But today we'll dig a little deeper on actually what do we mean by experts, and how do you become an expert, and what does it do to the brain, what are the uh, advantages as well as the shortcomings of listening to experts. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a very popular science book uh, called Outliers about developing expertise. And uh, I think the key that he talks about is 10,000 hours, like you spend 10,000 hours on a particular topic, and then you can truly become expert uh, at that topic. Is there any efficacy to that notion? That goes back to some research by Kay Anders Erickson, who's a uh, psychologist that studies expertise. Uh, 10 years was another figure that's thrown out. It takes 10 years to really become an expert. And there's a caveat there that uh, it's deliberate practice. And deliberate practice is, you know, very focused, uh, sort of heightened, um, you know, very dialed in type of study. It can't just be you know, floating around, you know, kind of play, throwing tennis balls or, you know, practicing uh, just in your spare time. Uh, you really have to put the effort into it and apply your craft. So the timing, it definitely can take time, but I don't know that there's an absolute uh, number because we have expertise in, for example, motor skills, like being a professional diver you know, that's, that's as much about perceiving where your, how your muscles are uh, tensed at different times and, and you're perceiving your body in space. And then you have something like being a chess or financial expert where it's all about numbers and strategy and you're dealing much more with a, a mental representation uh, with, without as much of a physical um, embodiment in that case. Yeah, it's interesting uh, when you think about it in the context of finance, you can have a sense of uh, expertise associated with perhaps a industry or a particular uh, subject matter that you've spent a lot of time studying. A lot of times we'll have some notion that we're expert, for instance, in the motions of the market when it's, it's often the case that it, a lot of it's just random. And uh, there's always this great debate that rages on in finance as to uh, whether the movement in securities prices are a random walk uh, that have no discernible pattern, or if there are patterns, but maybe they're fleeting and they may exist for a while, but then they they dissipate. Uh, so 
it, it's always a situation where if you feel like you have expertise because say you've traded for a long period of time and you have some notion that you've when something a particular set of circumstances arise that you've been there before whether that's useful or not I think what you're talking about there is patterns kind of our, our brain is reading patterns and uh, the challenge of being very narrowly specialized in a particular industry is you may start to notice patterns that that really are more random or fleeting and uh, you you almost know too much and you're sort of over applying your expertise and this is talked a lot about in uh, machine learning which uh, is an exciting area of computer science which is starting to become uh, more popular around around different industries and part of machine learning is uh, you have this challenge of of the the machine learning algorithm will overfit to certain data and then it, it, it sort of over applies. And I think maybe our brains are doing the same type of thing when we become experts where we sometimes read too much into data and we don't really notice some of the uh, maybe more random trends over time. And, and I think also we have some predispositions to see certain patterns, like we're pattern recognition machines. Uh, perhaps the best example of that is uh, the face that people often see on the moon. You know, there we have this predisposition to see faces. You may look at, for instance, at like I'll often see a pattern on a wall, and then I'll see, you know, a face in the pattern. A lot of people will see like uh, the image of, uh, of of Jesus or or Mary or some religious figure or Elvis. He's or a Elvis common, uh, pattern that, that people notice too. Yeah, that he? they're teasing out of uh, some random collection of shapes. Uh, and try to see some sort of meaning associated with it. But the reality is, is our brain is just looking for that pattern to begin with. And some of them, things like facial recognition is an important instinctive uh, recognition that we have. For instance, a baby's ability to recognize the face of its mother is important so that it's able to make that connection uh, So for its own survival. So it's interesting and now with expertise, of course, we spend you spend a lot of time with a particular subject and the patterns that you're recognizing are perhaps more developed. But uh, I think that there is a connection in that we're always trying to uh, create these patterns or see these patterns within the world just because it's our predisposition. It's interesting you mentioned faces. So that's one where everybody's a face expert and we gravitate toward looking at faces in infancy. It's, it's sort of part of our biological programming. Of course, we also tune our face recognition ability through experience. So if you travel uh, overseas to other cultures, you start to become more expert at discriminating people's uh, facial differences. And um, that's one of those kind of awkward moments because we we're we're kind of ethnocentric uh, because if we're not very familiar with the culture, we sometimes uh, don't appreciate the nuances of their faces. So it's definitely a combination of a natural interest in the face. And we gain so much evidence about emotion from facial expressions, but then we're further tuning those representations. So we had done some research with chess experts in this regard, and we were actually comparing the perception of chess experts to face recognition with the idea that everybody's a face expert, yet there's this interesting class of people that has spent 10,000 hours or more uh, voluntarily studying these very arbitrary configurations and chess boards. And modern chess is so 
study intensive because all of these games are on the web and you can literally just look at everything that happened in games. So the modern chess expert spends massive amounts of time just engaging in this pattern recognition process. So what we did is uh, actually compare their face recognition ability to their chess recognition ability. And uh, the results suggested that the chess experts were essentially as fluid at recognizing various chess boards as they were at recognizing faces, which is fantastic as a result. It's so surprising because, you know, you spend your whole life studying faces. And so it's very hard to do those studies because to get someone to voluntarily study something arbitrary for a very long time is, is quite hard to do. Now, is it the case that they, the experts that were better at recognizing various facial expressions, that they were also better at recognizing patterns within chess or that were so good at recognizing facial expression that uh, they had an equal amount of skill when it came to recognizing patterns within chess. Well, what it is really is that uh, we become so familiar with faces that we almost see the whole face. And so what you can do is divide facial pictures so that uh, the bottom and top halves are kind of separable in the experiment. So it might be you look at an image of your face, and then the next face that we present to you is the top half of my face and the bottom half of your face. And we're asking you to judge, is this the same top half? And you might be inclined to have interference, essentially, because the bottom half is different. And so we, we were, that was the, the uh, experiment that we were doing. We we're trying to take advantage of this automatic kind of recognition process. And that's extremely automatic because you're not supposed to attend at all to the bottom half of the face, but it, we can't help but have it interfere. Chess players got that same interference level when you switched out the one half of the board, but not the other. And so that suggests a high degree of automaticity. And that gets us into this uh, real distinction when it comes to what makes an expert. There's this idea of automatic processing versus controlled or deliberate processing. And uh, when you begin as a novice in, in pretty much any area, you are helplessly going to have to go through deliberate controlled processing. It's slow, it's effortful, it takes a lot of time. You're not efficient is really what it is. It's an inefficient me method of processing. And over time, you be build in some automaticity, and that's just presumably uh, your strengthening brain networks that support these whatever the processes are that uh, you've become expert in. So you become very fast and automatic and you can, you know, if you're in ch a chess player, you can play multiple games uh, without a board. You can play blitz chess where you're making moves in fractions of a second and all of it comes to you very quickly. And that opens you up to some biases, which uh, you know, we talk about mental models a lot in this this podcast. And when you become an automatic processing expert, there are times where you'll get trapped because you've sort of taken for granted that some situation or context has presented itself and you, it has maybe some surface features, but it turns out it, it's really a different case. And so that's, again, that pattern overfitting problem. Yeah, it's interesting when you think about it with respect to investing. Uh, there's uh, some stereotypes that have some efficacy associated to them, with them. For instance, with doctors, you know, a lot of doctors will approach investing and they're very good at what they do. 
you know, have a lot of expertise that they've built up. They're very smart, but then they may assume that intelligence and understanding they have carries over into the realm of investing. And so they're just smarter than, you know, people that may perhaps do that all the time. Uh, the reality is, is that one expertise in one area does not qualify you to have expertise in yet another area. Sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that we're smart, right? And that we have, you know, that we understand the universe better than someone else does because we've mastered some uh, sliver of knowledge. And then we extrapolate that to other universes. That's an interesting point. So a lot of people have asked, you know, does, does playing chess and becoming great at it make you better at doing the SAT or, you know, becoming a, a medical student? And uh, the short answer is no, it doesn't seem to. Uh, it's very hard to actually find a transfer to some other domain of that expertise. And it becomes a nature-nurture problem, of course, because usually you have to be fairly bright to take the time to do the deliberative practice necessary to become a chess expert. And so maybe there's a selection effect of just people that are generally pretty universally capable uh, are going to do, do that exercise. Something like uh, becoming an athlete or a chess player uh, might actually detract from your other abilities because you're spending so much concentrated effort time on that one area that you sort of miss a variety of other opportunities for, you know, study in other domains. And so that's really a question about the brain. Is there any, anything you can do to universally improve your brain power? And the answer seems to be quite elusive. I will say this. So in, my, in terms of my own life, I went to undergrad and I started playing this collectible card game competitively called Magic the Gathering, and I got very into it. I ended up writing about it, and then I played competitively on a pro tour. And then I didn't, and I didn't do a lot of uh, competitive sports growing up, but this was something that was intensely competitive, and there was an edge associated with it. And I would say that I definitely spent my 10,000 hours you know, trying to be the best Magic player in the world. And that experience, that competitive experience and that approach at trying to take a dynamic set of variables and put them together to make a competitive winning strategy was something that I was able to leverage and take into law school when I went to law school and apply it to being a good law student, uh, which ultimately ended up for me generating some, some degree of success in terms of where I grew graduated within my class. Uh, so it wasn't so much, you know, just the skills associated with learning how to play magic, but it was the skills associated with finding a working strategy and then applying that working strategy in a competitive environment and leveraging that in just a different domain. And that may be something where you do see a uh, spillover effect where you've applied this discipline and you've stuck with something and that you build grit maybe, or just a, uh, a mindset that you're able to, to accomplish this. It's maybe that's one of the, the big values in working toward expertise. Uh, the brain gives us clues on this as well. So when you do brain imaging with you know, expert golfers, for example, they actually have to quiet down their cortex. You, you don't see as much activity when they simulate a golf swing in their mind. 
when they have to think it through, that's actually when people choke, right? They overthink it and they start to do something different. It's almost like they have to shut their mind off and just let the automated circuitry go ahead and do its thing. And uh, this relates to something that that was a, a fascinating quote from a chess master. He was a, a British champion, uh, Jonathan Rousen, who had visited Dallas. And I had a chance to talk with him. And he also studied intelligence uh, with Howard Gardner, who's a famous uh, intelligence testing researcher. So he could understand all of the questions I had about chess experts. And he, was, he had that insider's perspective. And one of the, the amazing things he said was that as he went from master to grandmaster, so he was already an elite player, but then he took it up even another notch to become one of the, the very t- elite of the field. He said it was uh, like he wasn't thinking in pictures anymore. It was more like thinking in words. So you have this highly visual game, yet the strategy is maybe what is ultimately being extracted and used there. And he became so automatic. It, in his approach to the the game, he didn't have to consult any sort of visual map. It was actually more of a like a verbal code. Uh, it wasn't words exactly, but uh, that may be one of the benefits of expertise if you can take it to that level where you you start to see the bigger picture. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I it wasn't exactly the same uh, for me when I uh, played Magic, but I do remember having dreams about it. Like I'd go to sleep and I'd have dreams about games and different cards and things like that, and how they may be able to be used together, which was a little bizarre. Well, that's the value of sleep. It helps us consolidate our memories. So there's, I think the more we learn about sleep, especially REM sleep, the brain is very active, especially the the medial temporal lobes, the hippocampus, uh, in terms of uh, recycling these kind of events of the day and, and laying down memory traces. And that's why we could probably provide general advice to always prioritize sleep because uh, you will be stronger the next day, not only physically, but you'll have a better memory. So pulling the famous college all-nighter before an exam is a very bad idea because you're not only depriving yourself of uh, the restorative process in general, being fatigued, but you actually deprive your brain of that ability to lay down some of those uh, traces. And I think there are a lot of anecdotal stories of people Gaining insight, you know, it's why we have the phrase, go ahead and sleep on it. Yeah. It'll look different tomorrow. So um, I do want to take, before we wrap this one up, I do want to take one different uh, caveat down when it comes to investing uh, with respect to expertise. Often we'll rely on expert networks. We'll talk to various experts in a given industry to try to understand their insight. And this is somewhat analogous to uh, the notion of the doctor who is very skilled perhaps at brain surgery or at heart surgery, but then uh, assumes that, that that greatness, that ability that they have, that expertise, then carries over into another field. Uh, when you'll talk to an industry expert, oftentimes you can be kind of led down the primrose pri- uh, path by assuming, giving way too much deference to them because they do have expertise within that given industry and they may not understand the financial ramifications and competitive ramifications of some of the issues that they're focused on, which they think are quite important. And they may be from a narrative perspective, but not necessarily from a financial perspective. And uh, I've often seen analysts 
take a miscue and overly emphasize some expert testimony uh, or expert uh, information that they've acquired uh, in developing their investment narrative, and it ends up leading them down the wrong path. And this also seems like a good tip for for people to use is is if you're considering trusting an expert's opinion, um, really try to dig deeper on how they arrived at that opinion, and at, at least start to understand some of the ground rules of, you know, how they how they appear to to have gotten there. So, one of the reasons uh, experts are so compelling is there's this mystery behind them, right? It's you can't see into their mind, and they they have there's often a halo effect where it appears as if they're just generally smart at possibly everything and for unknown and mysterious reasons. And that gets very dangerous if you're going to take advice from someone because you can't question it in any regard if you're just sort of taking it on blind faith. And so if you are going to listen to experts, uh, it probably pays off to do a lot of your own background work as well, just so you can gauge a little bit better as to where they're going with their advice. As an analyst, when you're getting uh, some insight from a particular expert, it's always good to follow up with the question, well, how does that affect the business? You know, what, what difference can that make with respect to costs? How might that affect revenues? How is that likely to affect the competitive positioning of your business or of a given business that you're analyzing relative to others? So just getting more color around the particular notion that they may think is really quite important and they may emphasize significantly, but then you've got to apply your own judgment, at least in this case, in in the financial arena of whether or not what they see as material is actually something that's going to move the needle. Okay. So I think we're probably about ready to wrap up on this topic. I'm not sure we're experts on doing expertise discussion, but we've made it a little (laughs) bit of deliberative (laughs) practice here. Uh, so one of the things I would say we, we've talked about is the speed and efficiency with which an expert can maneuver is much higher from this deliberative practice that they engage in. Um, however, it's somewhat elusive as to how those skills uh, actually transfer or whether they transfer to other areas or domains. And so uh, when you listen to expert advice, it's important to do some of your own fundamental research on kind of the uh, the context. And so that way you can better estimate if they're narrowly focused on a particular area, you can maybe appreciate the context better um, so that you'll know where and when to listen to them and where their advice might be a little uh, misguided uh, or not quite right for the problem. Yeah, it's, I think that's, that's great. Well, uh, so I guess that's about it. So we've probably got about 9,999 more hours of this before we're really experts at this uh, particular topic. Uh, So we'll go off and get some deliberative practice. Excellent. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dana George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. 
The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.